Amen. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. This is, I suppose, sermon number 3 in our, our new series going through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. The text is printed there for you in the bulletin. You're welcome to follow along in that, but if you do have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to take them out to follow along in your own copy of God's Word. Last week, we were in the beginning of chapter 2, and it started with God's people still in slavery in Egypt, and lo and behold, two people got together and a baby was born. By the end of today's reading, that baby is 80 years old, so we're making very good progress through Moses' life. We're covering a lot of ground chronologically, and that's important to remember what happens, happens in God's timing. It happens as he plans it to happen no faster and no slower. So today we're going to read Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11 through the end of the chapter is verse 25. So as is our custom, let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant word given to make us wise unto salvation, to give us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. So we ask now that that your spirit will be with us to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see and seeing understand and understanding be moved to know our Savior and to love our Savior, Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this portion of the story of Moses, we can essentially break down very easily 
into three sections. There's three paragraphs, at least in my Bible there are. And each of these three sections shows us today one aspect of what it means to do God's work in God's way. To hear God calling us to live, to follow Him, to serve Him, but not only to follow Him, but to learn what it means for us to be doing God's work in God's way. And so the three sections, we see Moses in Egypt, see Moses in Midian, and then we get a special glimpse seeing God in heaven. Moses in Egypt, Moses in Midian, and then in the last three verses there, we get a glimpse of God in heaven. If we look at verse 11, the very beginning of this passage, one day, one day, when Moses had grown up, what it doesn't say there is that one day is 40 years after the previous verse. 40 years have passed now that Moses, who was born, put in the basket in the Nile, floated in his ark that his mother made for him, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, we know, according to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is giving a speech and he recounts for us the history of the people, he, we know from Acts chapter 7 that uh, he spent 40 years. He was 40 years old when he went out to see his people, as it says here. He went out and he saw his people and looked upon their burdens. And so uh, what we know from history is that during this 40 years, Moses was growing up and he was receiving an education in Pharaoh's household. He would have been one of, of probably many who would have been adopted into the king's household, who would have been brought in and received a special education. Uh, the Pharaoh had a way of, of adopting others, even foreigners, and raising them up to serve in his army or in his household. We know most likely what Moses would have learned, he would have learned leadership and military strategy. We can only imagine that some leadership skills would come in awfully handy for Moses, who's going to be called to lead the Israelites, roughly two million people strong, and to lead them out of Egypt and through the desert. He also would have had the opportunity to learn rhetoric and law. Would have come in pretty handy for a guy who was going to receive the law from the Lord at Mount Sinai and then uh, write the majority of the first five books of the Bible. Having some rhetoric training would be useful to him. And even as we think that, we see that, that God has been at work. In his own way, in his providence, God has, in fact, had a plan for Moses. We've been reflecting on the end of Genesis 50 where Joseph says to his brothers, you intended evil for me, but God meant it for good. In having Joseph be sold into slavery, in having Joseph come to Egypt, in having Joseph grow up in that royal household, spending much of it in, in prison, but then raising up through the ranks and becoming second in command. And he, he looked on that and he saw that even though that had come about through evil means, his brothers trying to kill him, nevertheless, he could also see God's hand of providence in his life and, and reflect to say, God has not abandoned me. God never left me. In fact, now with the perspective of time, he looks back and he sees God has been at work in this. God had a reason for this. God did this intentionally. And, and we have the opportunity to look at Moses' life and say, well, he got into Pharaoh's household through very evil means, through the decree of Pharaoh to kill the children. Through, through these parents who must have been terrified that their baby boy was going to be thrown into the river and drowned. And so they abandoned him. They sent him out in an ark on the river. And as evil as all of that was, God had a reason for that. 
And we can see in his story that there is the invisible hand of God's providence that is at work and has never left his people. That he, in all he does, is raising up for them a deliverer. He is at work in the most unexpected ways preparing Moses, preparing him for the calling on his life to be this deliverer of God's people. And yet what we're going to see in this passage is that his time of preparation is not complete. I like like to think that now he's completed his formal education and his schooling in Pharaoh's household, but it yet remains for him to complete his internship. Now he needs to go out into the field, literally, and get some practical experience. He's put in his 40 years of preparation. He thinks he's ready. He thinks he's ready to go out and to be the deliverer of God's people. He goes out and starts on his own, and we see what happens. It, It blows up in his face. God thinks Moses yet needs 40 more years of seasoning before he's going to be ready to undertake the calling that God has for Moses' life. As I I think about that reality, one of my roles in our presbytery is, is to be on the committee of examination. So any men who would seek to be ordained in our presbytery I'm in on that process of examining them to see whether or not they have been adequately prepared and seasoned for the task of serving as a minister in the church. And, uh, and I have a special role of sort of walking guys through the process and explaining to them what it takes, what the steps are to be a minister in our denomination. And the reality is uh, a little bit uh, striking to some of them that it's a long process. And I'm thankful for that. I think that is a strength of our denomination, that, that there is a lengthy process that men must go through and many exams to which they must submit in order to become a minister in our denomination. And yet there's always some guys who hear of that and it's like a splash of cold water and they say, whoa, I, ain't nobody got time for all these exams and for all of this schooling and for all of this internship that needs to be required and to check off all of these boxes. And inevitably there will be some who give up and take a different route. Seek out other churches that could ordain more quickly. In fact, one reality of, of that, that is easy to notice these days is that uh, it seems church planters are, are getting younger and younger. And I think church planting these days is very popular. It's actually become a, a common thing. It's become much more hip, which is a, a good thing. We need more church planters. We need more good gospel-centered ch- churches in our world. And so I'm glad that it's coming back into favor. But part of that is There are men who want to get into that as quickly as they can without having the patience to go through the appropriate training, to walk through all the different steps that need to be taken to be approved as a church planter. I meet many guys who get a bit frustrated in learning about the requirements. I can only imagine how Moses must have felt. Here he had put in his 40 years of education in Pharaoh's household, learning everything he thought he knew. He was now raised up in in, in education, He was in a position of power. He was in a position of influence. And now God says he needs 40 more years before he'll be ready to deliver God's people. What we see in this passage is that there is a need not only to do God's work, but that we must be willing to learn what it means to do God's work in God's way. You see, when Moses goes out of his house and he looks on the the burdens of his people and he is willing to deliver them and he strikes down this Egyptian we have to say he had nothing but good intentions. He, he had compassion in his heart for the people of Israel. 
He had a sense of justice. He saw a, a slave being mistreated by this Egyptian. And so all of this are good things, and he, he wants to deliver God's people. Well, that's exactly what God is going to call him to do. The intentions are good. The goal is good. It's the means that are bad, that need yet to be sorted out. He is the one in this passage who needs to learn what it's going to mean to do God's work and to do it in God's way. Can't you imagine how, how easy it would have been to be one of the Israelites in those days and, and to think, this is perfect. Finally, we've got one of our own in Moses here who has, has worked his way into Pharaoh's house. He's been adopted. Oh, that's perfect. He's grown up. He's received this first-rate education from no doubt the best tutors and the best scholars in the land. He's in a position of power, influence. He's in Pharaoh's house. He probably has Pharaoh's ear. They had to think this was all shaping up just perfectly. Finally, one of their own had made it into the position of power. But it wasn't perfect, was it? Because that's not how God works. God doesn't work through the high and the powerful and the influential and the mighty. God doesn't work through those who work themselves up to large platforms with political power. Isn't this the temptation we fall into so often to think in these worldly ways of thinking? It's the same thing we do when we begin to dream if only Christianity could become more culturally acceptable. If only there were some of the famous people out there, some of the wealthy who, who became Christian and were willing to be outspoken about it. You know, what if, what if Michael Phelps were a Christian and, and he were using the great platform that he has been given? Or what if, uh, I don't know, Brad Pitt, I don't know, who are the famous people these days? If, if one of those people who who were at the center of, of cultural influence and power and, and people were willing to listen to, what if one of them became a Christian and we think, oh, that would do so much good for the kingdom of God? But don't we see that that's not how God chooses to work in the world? He doesn't only choose to work through those who are, are powerful and mighty and influential and looked to. That's not how the gospel spreads. That's how we tend to think. There's a... <clears throat> I can't help but think one of my favorite Christian rappers, which is totally uncool to be a Christian rapper, but they say, they have this line, if only we had better rappers to gain us more respect, to validate what we believe and keep our name up in the press. But God does not use the same methods as the world. He chose the foolish and the weak to bring his message to the world. We don't need more superstars. We need more gospel-centered churches. That is exactly what the Bible says is how God is prone to work. God doesn't use superstars. God doesn't use superstars. He uses gospel-centered churches. He uses the humble, the weak, the marginalized. Those who would seem to be nothing in the eyes of the world, those are the ones that God is pleased to use for his purposes and to raise up. That's what it means that Moses needs to learn what it is now to do God's work, but also to learn how to do it in God's own way. Not to take the means into his own hands, but to leave the means to God and to, to, to humbly trust God that a very peculiar means of delivering his people is actually the best possible way. We think of others in the Bible. Think of Peter. Peter so badly wanted Jesus to rise up and to bring the kingdom and to overthrow those in power that when he was with Jesus in the garden, he pulled out his sword and he hit 
Malchus and chopped off his ear, the servant of the high priest. Can you imagine how does Jesus feel? Oh, again, Peter, I have to pick up the ear and put it back on. That's not how the kingdom comes. We must learn how to do God's work in God's way. Think about, do you remember the little story in the dusty corner of the Old Testament about, about Uzzah? Uzzah, I don't know. Uzzah, who is helping transport the Ark of the Covenant and it's on a cart and it tips. And he stretches out his arm to steady it so it doesn't fall in the mud. And God strikes him dead. You're not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. You think, goodness, it was going to fall in the mud. He was just trying to help. But, but we go back and we read later in the book of Exodus, God gave very specific instructions for how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved from place to place. There were rings on the corners and they were to put poles through these rings and the Levites were to carry the poles on each corner to transport the Ark of the Covenant. And I picture Uzzah here saying, guys, I've got these oxen. We can get this thing from point A to point B. It'll be half the time as carrying it. Maybe it was Uzzah's oxen. We don't even know. But he was doing God's work of moving the Ark of the Covenant, but he had not yet learned what it meant to do God's work in God's way. To trust him, not merely for the ends, but also for the process. To say there is a certain process that needs to be followed that we must be willing to trust to follow the process of doing God's work in God's way. Even Jesus, so many times Jesus was, was around people who wanted to make him king. He said, Jesus, we could, we could expand this platform. We could get you a, a better voice that more people would listen to, bigger crowds. And what does Jesus do? Every time he disappeared from among them and went out to a, a desolate place where he could pray. He was willing to do God's work and to do it in God's way because the business of the kingdom of God does not proceed in the same manner as the business of this world. Now let's come back to Moses here for a moment in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, when he kills this Egyptian, it shows a couple things about him. On the one hand, as we said, it, it does show he's got a sense of justice. He has a sense of compassion. He understands that they do need to be delivered. But it also shows that, that he's a bit impulsive. He's a bit imprudent. He's not waiting on the Lord. There's a very interesting contrast in this passage I want you to see. Look at verse 11. It says, He went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. Moses went out, and Moses looked on their burdens. Now, look at verse 25, where it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew here's the contrast in this passage it begins, the beginning of the story is that Moses goes out, Moses looks on the burdens of his people and Moses knew but that didn't do any good, that did not help the people, what finally helps in the end God looks at the people and God knows their burdens what matters in this story is not the status of Moses it's not whether or not Moses in a position of power can do anything but but whether the Lord sees. It's when the Lord sees Moses is filled with zeal, but not knowledge. He has zeal for his task, but it's a zeal that does not have knowledge. And so he enacts his own plan for the growth of the church, the deliverance of Israel in this case, and things go south. He, he murders this Egyptian, and we see he has an evil con or a guilty conscience. And the people don't take it well, and they don't, accept him as their deliverer and he has to flee to the, the desert 
Motier, a commentator, he says, Humanly speaking, when Moses took the law into his own hands, he put the day of deliverance further back. Of course, he goes on, of course, from the divine point of view, there is no disorder in the Lord's program, but nevertheless, humanly speaking, when Moses bustled onto the scene, he put the divine program back 40 years. From a human perspective, because Moses was impatient, because he wanted to do God's work in his own way, he set things back. And it's good for us to look at Moses, the proud, Moses, the impudent, Moses, the impatient, and to see him there as a mirror, to see ourselves there in that, and to understand how easy it is for for us to, to understand that the Lord calls us calls us to a life of discipleship, calls us to a life of service. Some he calls to one task, some to another, but his call is on your life, and yet we must understand not only what, but how. Are we willing to follow him, not merely with the end in mind, but with the process in mind, with every day in mind, giving that day to the Lord? Are we willing to trust him with it, to wait? There are many people who would love to follow God if it meant making a great name for themselves, gaining recognition, gaining respect. Are we also willing to follow the Lord on the path of obscurity, on the path of humility, on the path of being a a shepherd in Midian for 40 years, wandering the wilderness with sheep? Because that's where the Lord is taking Moses in this passage. He now is going to take Moses to the school of patience, the school of shepherding. Here's what he's done. He, he's made a mess of things in verse 15, and so it says, uh, Pharaoh hears of it, and Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so he flees to Midian. He's going to spend 40 years tending the sheep of, of Jethro, Ruel, two names, same person. This is the only passage in Exodus that uses the name Ruel. Later he's called Jethro, but it's the same person, his father-in-law, the priest in Midian. Forty years in the wilderness. The good news will be that that for Moses, God does not forget about Moses. Forty years into that, he's going to appear to Moses, the story of the burning bush, which is chapter 3. But it's 40 years. I mean, it's 40 years. That is a long time. I had a, my church in South Carolina, there was an old guy. He was 81 or so. He was a bachelor his whole life still lived in the farmhouse in which he was born. And I can't tell you how many times he would tell me his favorite verse, Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and of good heart and wait for the Lord. And he would always tell me, you know it's important if the Bible says it twice. Twice in that verse it says, wait for the Lord. And this this 81-year-old bachelor would say, you know that's important if God says it twice to you, to wait for the Lord, to be patient. Moses is 40 years. What did he think of that calling to to deliver Israel? His people. His people still in in slavery. Him out there tending to the sheep. But the timing, the timing of this is interesting. Look at these verses. Exodus doesn't tell us the timeline, but we can put it together. According to Acts 7 is where we learn that Moses lived in Midian for 40 years. So, 40 years in Pharaoh's house, then he flees to Midian, 40 more years. 
He dies when he's 120. So 80 years of preparation, 40 years of, of ministry, we could say. Two years of preparation for every year of, of service. But here's what's interesting. We read here, it's, it's verse 22. She gives birth to a son. And they call his name Gershom. Now, if we look over in chapter 4, starting in verse 18, talks about Moses returning to Egypt. He's leaving Midian. He's going back to Egypt. And when he does, in verse 20, Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. Now, commentators infer from that that Gershom, at that point, was still pretty young. In fact, he was uncircumcised. He doesn't get circumcised till down in verse 25 and 26 of chapter 4. So, he has this boy in, in Midian, and at the end of the 40 years in Midian, he's going back to Egypt, and Gershom is still very young, which tells us something that what it says in verses 20 and 21 and 22 of, of chapter 2 here, where he dwells there, he eats bread, he gets a wife, and, and she has a son, somewhere in there about 35 years have passed. And it doesn't tell us that, but it's significant. It's significant that it doesn't all happen right away. It doesn't happen right away, and Gershom grows up in the wilderness before they go back to Egypt. There's time that passes in there, and here's why this is important. Here's why this matters, because it's in that time that I think we start to see Moses' heart begin to change. When he has this son, probably 35-ish years into shepherding in Midian, he names him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. See, that says something about Moses. Now he's ready to be the deliverer of God's people. Now he's ready. Something has changed. Earlier in the story, we saw proud Moses. We saw royal Moses. We saw powerful, authoritative Moses ready to come out of Pharaoh's household and to, to lay down the law of justice so that he can deliver his people his way and his timing. But now, 35 years on, it's a different Moses. It's a humble Moses. A Moses who says, I am a sojourner in a foreign land. He understands that he's not who he used to be. He's not royal, powerful Moses anymore. Now he's, he's humble Moses. You see, all of the Israelites are sojourners in a foreign land. They're all sojourners. That's who they are. The whole nation is in Egypt. Moses had to come to the point where, where he identified with the people, where he understood that he himself was just like they are, that he too was a sojourner in a foreign land. Then he was in a place where he could be ready to do God's work in God's way. See, if, if powerful royal Moses had just come out of the royal palace one day and just delivered the people with his strength of his right arm and shown them his might Moses would have gotten the glory. No one would have said, oh, God has done this. They would have said, thank God for Moses. Moses is mighty and powerful and, and wise, and he has delivered us. But when God first would take Moses through 40 years of tending sheep and bring him down to the level of all the other people as just a sojourner in a foreign land, nobody mighty, nobody powerful, then when God would deliver them out of Egypt, there would be no question left in the minds of any of the people who would get the credit for that deliverance. For it was God by his power 
It was God by his power. We'll even get to the point where Moses is reluctant. He says, I can't do this. You can't send me before Pharaoh. I'm slow of speech and in tongue. Who am I to go speak to the king? He's, He's brought him down so far that now he is relying on God and his strength alone. Whereas earlier in the chapter, he was going out in his own strength and he needed to learn what it meant to do God's work in God's way. Because it's God's way to use the humble. It's God's way to use the broken. It's God's way to use the the unexpected in order that God will get the glory. Isn't this what Paul writes? 2 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If he had delivered the people with powerful Moses, that would have been the way of the world, so expected. But using humble Moses, weak sojourner Moses, this is the way of the cross. You think... Think of Jesus. Even Jesus did not come that first time on the clouds of heaven with the swords and the armies of angels as a powerful, mighty king. How did he come? The weakest possible way. A little baby to a poor family, rural Bethlehem. Nobody would have noticed. He came as one of us. He underwent human suffering. He knew what it was to face human temptation without sinning. That's God's way of salvation. That's God's way of deliverance. And is it not still God's way of working today? God's way of working today is that the kingdom of God grows not by the wise, not by the eloquent, not by the powerful. Paul says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's God's way of working. He, in His wisdom, in His providence, chooses to use the least likely. Chooses to use ones like us who aren't powerful. We're not eloquent. We're not wise. We're just, we're just us. Weak, tempted, tossed about by doubt, fears and fightings within, without. But trusting in the Lord, relying on the grace of Christ, that's exactly the type of person that God will use to do God's work, surrendered to him to do it in God's way. Paul talks about the, the mysterious thorn that he was given to keep him humble so that God's power might be made perfect in his weakness. And so in 40 years of Midian, God, Moses was given this priceless gift of obscurity, of humility, of nothingness to teach his soul wisdom so that when he went out then to serve the Lord, it was God who got the glory. Isn't it easy for us to to fall into sort of this little spiritual pity party to think that, that we'll never have a great influence from the Lord. We're not like some of these people who are such fantastic speakers and strong leaders. 
so wise, so smart, so eloquent. We think we'll never, we'll never do much for the Lord. He won't have a great impact through us. And yet to think that way is to have it all backwards. According to the Bible, that's, that's exactly the kind of person God delights to use. Those who are nothing. Those who have nothing of themselves to trust in. Some of you may be right now in the Lord's school of patience. Would you be patient? Would you wait for the Lord? Be strong, have good courage, wait for the Lord. Now, now we get to verse 22 of this passage. As Moses is being prepared, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The evil king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. It wasn't, it wasn't just the one king of, of Egypt that was Israel. Kings come, kings go. Politicians come, politicians go. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. What makes a difference in this world is not the politician on the throne. It's the cries of God's people to a merciful and faithful God. That's what changes things in this world. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God, God knew. I love that last phrase of this verse where it just says, God knew, because that's enough, isn't it? God knew. But that, there's a Hebrew word there. It's, it's so deep and it's so significant. It's far more than just, and God registered the facts and he was aware of the situation. That word is a, an intimate knowing. It's a, a connectedness with. It's a union with. What that says is, is God heard their cries and he remembered his covenant. He knew that these were his people and it says God saw and he was concerned about them. He understood. He felt the weight of their cries. It says, chapter 3, verse 7 says, I know their sufferings and I have come to deliver them. Those go together. When God knows, God comes to deliver. See, the great hope of all the Israelites in slavery at this time, their great hope that could sustain them was not that one of their own had finally made it into a position of worldly power. No, that didn't get them anywhere. Their great hope was that God was on the throne and that he is a God who hears the cries of his people and he remembers his covenant that he has made with them. And he looks on them with compassion and pity and he says, these are my people. And he sees their suffering. And he knows. He knows. Psalm 1-6. You should write that down and look at it later. Psalm 1-6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Think about that contrast. It doesn't say he knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked he's not aware of, or he forgets. It says he knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. For God to know your way is to, to know that you are not going to perish, that you are sustained, that you are held, that you are protected, that you are preserved, because God knows the way of his righteous. He sees the groans of his people. He knows. He knows, and he... He loves, that's your great hope, isn't it? That God knows you and he knows your way. He looks over it. 
And so, and so the people are strengthened. Their cry has gone out, and it's come to the Lord, and he sustains his people. And this is the hinge of the book. This is the hinge of the book of Exodus. Because before this, Moses has tried his hand at deliverance, said, I'm going I'm to be this deliverer. I'm going to see what I can do. And it completely failed, and he had to flee. Moses want, or Pharaoh wanted to kill him. But now there's a hinge. Now God sees his people, and God knows. And now the wheels of true deliverance begin to move. Because as we get into chapter 3 next week, Moses is going to be out there wandering among the plains of Midian on the west side of the wilderness. He's going to see a burning bush that's not consumed. And God is going to step into the story. And God is going to set things in motion to deliver and to do God's work in God's way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you teach our hearts to rest in the promises of Christ, to trust that he and he alone is our deliverer and our great Savior. Lord, would you teach us patience? Would you teach us humility? Would you give us the desire not merely to be zealous for your work, but to have a zeal that accords with knowledge, to learn to do your work in your way, not to put our trust in, in worldly ways, worldly works, worldly systems, but, Father, to humble ourselves, for you are a God who delights in the humble, for this is the one to whom you will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. Lord, may that describe our hearts. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.